We would open to the book of James again this morning. I'm going to have Jim come and uh, read the section that we're looking at today, which will be uh, verses 10. We'll go back just one verse into what we looked at last time. Verse 10 through 17. 10 through the rest of the chapter. 4, yes, chapter 4, 10 through 17. So, Jim, if you'd come... James chapter 4 verse 10 Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you Do not speak against one another brethren He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother Speaks against the law and judges the law But if you judge the law you are not a doer of the law but a judge of it There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do, and does not do it, to him it is sin. Well, we have a important section of this book of James. We've, I think, if my count's right, we've been looking at, into this book ten times so far. This number ten. And uh, we are so needy in terms of just applying these things to our lives. I know I am. There's so much application that James brings to uh, each one of us here as we look through what he wrote to these Jewish Christians back there in the first century. Last time we looked at the cause and the cure of conflict in the church when we looked at uh, verses 1 through 10 there of chapter 4. The cause and the cure of conflict in the church. Briefly, the cause of conflict in the church is our selfish, self-centered pleasures, things like lust and envy and friendship with the world. The cure is repentance and trust in Christ, humbly and sincerely submitting to God, resisting the devil, and having a true desire for moral purity. So the cause and the cure, that's what we looked at last time. Now, in verses 11 and 12, there seems to be a return to the subject that he's dealt with quite extensively before the subject of our speech. You remember how prominent that was in chapter 3? It's one of the uh, major sections in the Bible on uh, our tongue and speech. It's not hard to see that the sins of envy and quarreling and following after 
the world's ways are almost always linked to speaking evil of others. If you have those kind of attitudes in your heart, there's going to be speaking evil uh, through the tongue. So James tells us clearly that we're not to speak against one another. Now there's a command that we don't hear much about in the Bible. It's a very clear command. Verse 11, do not speak against one another, brethren. It's just point-blank command. And uh, we want to examine that a little bit here this morning. This can include many different kinds of harmful speech, such as slander, bringing false accusations, bitter, destructive verbal attacks, and even questioning legitimate authority like the people of Israel did when they spoke against Moses. You remember that in the Old Testament in Numbers? It also would include such things as speaking in a derogatory manner, backbiting, you know what that is, as speaking behind somebody's back in a derogatory way, backbiting, gossip, ridicule, sarcasm. Those are the kind of things he's talking about here when he says, do not speak against one another, brethren. Actually, I think James is considering some of the ramifications in the life of the community of professing believers that he was writing to, some of the ramifications in these various groups who would not do what he said in verse 10. This is why I had Jim read verse 10. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you in the proper time. Speaking against others is the opposite of humility. A spirit of humility cannot exist alongside the spirit which speaks against a brother or sister. They just are incompatible. James goes on to show that there is a close connection between speaking evil of others and judging others. See how he puts that right in the, in the context here? He says, do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law. So there's a close connection here. A judgmental attitude almost always precedes slanderous derogatory speech. That judgmental uh, attitude is going to be there, and then out comes these things of speaking against one another. We've talked a number of times in the past about this subject of judging, and, and James has already brought it up in this book, but I think it would be profitable if we tried to clarify a little bit more, a little better, what we're talking about. Because not all judging is wrong. In fact, we're commanded to judge. But it must be a righteous judgment. As Jesus said in John 7:24, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. So, in this one verse, we see that there is a superficial judging, which is forbidden. It's a judging according to appearance. And a godly, righteous judgment, which is commanded and commended. 
Proverbs 31, 9 says, Open your mouth, judge righteously. There it is again, righteous judgment. Judge righteously, defend the rights of the afflicted and needy. You can't go through life, especially as a Christian, without making judgments about things. We are. We continually judge between right and wrong, between good and bad, between better and best, and that's what we should be doing, judging a righteous judgment. James has already brought up this subject of judging according to appearance, which is the wrong way, when he dealt with favoritism in chapter 2, making distinctions among people on the basis of outward characteristics like wealth or how they dress. That's judging according to appearance, you see, and that's what's wrong. That's the wrong kind of judging. He says, when you do that, you're judging with evil motives. Evil motives. Other criteria by which we should not judge would be things like the tradition of men, uh, party spirit. See that going on a lot in when the Republicans talk with the Democrats. And there's a party spirit there. They cannot agree. They will not agree. They've already determined whatever the other person says is wrong. (laughs) Party spirit. Sectarian views. My group. My church. We're the right ones. Sectarian views. Autonomous human opinion. Things not based on God's word. The way the world judges. Those Those are not the way we should judge. So what we're seeing is that the word judge can be used in different ways in different contexts. I want to look at just one more example. If you turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And... Paul is dealing with the subject of church discipline. There has to be judgment on our parts if there's going to be church discipline. We can't possibly have church discipline without some judgment. Righteous judgment, but judgment nonetheless. He says this, Paul says this, For I, on my part, there was serious sin in the church. Oh, chapter 5, verse 3. There's serious sin in this situation that Paul is addressing, and he said, For I... On my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who, is to be, uh, who has committed this, as though I were present. So he says, I've judged him. And he, he's saying, I'm making a righteous judgment here concerning what was going on there. Well, you might say, well, that's just Paul. He could do that. He was an apostle. No, he goes on and tells the people that they're responsible in this area too. If you look at verse 12... He says this, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? He says that's what you're supposed to be doing. But those who are outside God judges, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. He's saying you need to be involved in this judging too. It's a righteous thing to get this evil out of the church. So uh, I'm just bringing out, you know, trying to make the contrast here between a righteous judgment and an unrighteous one that we're supposed to avoid. We should never judge hypocritically or arbitrarily. By that I mean according to our own opinions 
or the, by the world's standards. We shouldn't go by those things. But we are to judge with God's righteous judgment, which he has given to us in his word. There's the key. If we're going to make a righteous judgment, you need to know God's word. You need to know how he views things. So it is very important that we not only do this to other people when there's serious sin towards other people, but we have to apply God's righteous judgment to our own lives first. That's, that's primary in this thing of having a righteous judgment. As Jesus said, first take the log out of your own eye. How do you do that? Well, we do that by staying under God's word ourselves. See, God's word is quick and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and able to judge the thoughts and intents of the heart. If you're going to judge righteously, you need to have God's word in your heart and you need to stay under it yourself. God's word is able to judge. Then if we're going to do any righteous judgment outwardly, it has to be done first inwardly by the word of God. The person who stays under God's word is willing to be corrected and judged by it. When we do that, we realize that we should not think or speak or act towards others from a position of doubt or deception or fear or vengeance or self-righteousness or arrogance, bitterness, mockery, selfishness, or hopelessness. If you stay under God's word, you won't go with those kind of attitudes towards other people. Now I'll say this. If we are the type of person who looks for things to accuse others of, we should realizing that that is the way of Satan. He's the accuser of the brethren. And if you're the type of person who likes to look around to try find things to accuse others of, you're just following in Satan's steps. The accuser of the brethren, and he's a slanderer. Even the all-too-common practice of complaining against one another is something that we need to avoid. In fact, James brings this out. Um, back in James chapter 4, Actually, if you skip ahead to chapter 5 and verse 6, no, excuse me, verse 9. Chapter 5, verse 9. Do not complain, brethren, against one another. There's another command. Do not complain, brethren, against one another that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. So, we are not to condemn or pass judgment upon somebody maliciously or hypocritically or arbitrarily. But on the other hand, we have the responsibility to properly evaluate others' words and actions. Often this takes time. It takes time to really know the facts of the situation should not be hasty. One writer gave this illustration 
of a house in poor maintenance. We can see the paint peeling and the broken windows, but would we condemn the owner as lazy? Suppose that the owner is an invalid or just too poor to have it fixed. We must be careful about judging hastily, without the facts or without first dealing with our own life. Such judgments are what Jesus condemns in Matthew chapter 7. Do not judge, lest you be judged. So, just trying to clarify this thing of judging. Actually, in that same chapter where Jesus says, Do not judge, lest you be judged, he, he tells us that we will know false prophets by their fruits. But again, often it takes time for that fruit to appear. You can't just automatically say, well, that, that person's wrong, that person's sinful, that person's easy. Often it takes a little patient waiting and examination and discernment over time. Well, along with this, we should not presume to know one another's motive, motives or motivation as if we could see into their heart. Only God knows that. Again, as one writer put it, we must be discerning in our discernment. We must be discerning in our discernment and always proceed on the basis of truth and the facts, leaving the unknown areas of motivation to God. Well, you can't see in the heart. You don't know that. And you need to be careful about judging motives. First uh, Samuel sixteen seven. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. He can do that. So once again, let me just try to kind of put it in a nutshell here. We are called to judge overt and gross sin in the church and false presentations of clear essential doctrine. What one man says, the main and the plain things. Essential doctrine. We are called to judge those things in the church. In the, he's not speak when he says, do not speak against one another, brother. And that's not what he's talking about. Overt, gross sin in the church, false presentations of clear essential doctrine. Those things we have to judge. Be discerning on. Yet even here, judgment must be tempered with a desire for restoration. It's not malicious, this thing that when we point these things out, bring these things out, confront people with these things. It's not a malicious thing. Our desire is for restoration. We should always seek to be redemptive in our relations with other people, both Christians and non-Christians. I want to say that again. We should always seek to be redemptive in our relations with other people both Christian and non-Christians. We are to be ambassadors for Christ, and we have been given the ministry of reconciliation, not condemnation. Ministry of reconciliation. I think a heartfelt desire to see people reconciled to God is one of the main things that will help us to avoid judgmentalism and keep us from speaking against one another, the way he's talking about here. Don't speak against one another. Well, if you have a heartfelt desire to see people reconciled to God, you won't be doing that. So, just don't 
I mean, if, if you miss everything else I say today, remember that. We are to be people who seek to be redemptive in our relationships with all people. So judging as a critical condemnation which pronounces final judgment on others according to our opinion is forbidden. Judging as a correct evaluation of the situation done in humility on the basis of God's truth with a, with a desire for redemption is commanded. Authentic faith will never desire to judge people contrary to love and truth. Authentic faith. We've been talking about that a lot. That's what the book of James is about, I think. Well, authentic faith will never desire to judge people contrary to love and truth. Well, that was kind of an extension into this thing of judging, but I felt like we could benefit from clarifying or trying to clarify that a little bit. In our scripture for today, James is speaking... He's saying that speaking against a fellow believer involves standing in judgment over him or her. But amazingly, he takes this thing of speaking against one another even further by saying that doing this involves speaking against the law and judging the law. See how he says it here? He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you are a judge of the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. So what's this mean, to speak against the law? Well, first thing we must determine is what law is he referring to. I would say it is the Old Testament law as interpreted and fulfilled in Christ. We've brought this out a number of times already in the book of James. Um, what he calls the perfect law, the law of liberty, the royal law. As far as the Old Testament is concerned, he is probably thinking of Leviticus 19, 15 through 18. So let's turn to that. Leviticus 19 and verse 15. You shall, not, you shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly, a righteous judgment. You shall not go about as a slanderer among your people, and you are not to act against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your fellow countryman in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So, you know, if there was probably, if there was one scripture he was thinking of in particular when he wrote this related to the Old Testament, that was probably it. But this law, like all the law in the Old Testament, for a Christian is explained and demonstrated and clarified in Christ. We don't just take that law uh, by itself. It's always interpreted and fulfilled and clarified for us in Christ. So here again, James is referring to Christ's royal law, the law of liberty, the law of Christ, which does not negate 
the Old Testament law, but rather fleshes it out for us and fulfills it. It fleshes it out because Christ came in the flesh and lived it perfectly. I think that's what he's talking about when he's thinking about the law. A a judgmental, critical, condemning spirit violates Christ's law of love. That should be clear to every Christian. To be judgmental, condemning, malicious, slanderous, those things violate the law of Christ. We who say we have received God's mercy should never interact with each other in an unmerciful manner. It would be the, a, a complete contradiction of the law of the one who we say died for us. Consequently, James says that such a person is not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. And in fact, that person is usurping God's place as lawgiver and judge. He really digs into this deeply. I mean, we start out with talking about speaking against a brother, and he shows all the deep ramifications of what what you're doing when you do that. You're usurping God's place as lawgiver and judge. You can't be both judge over the law and a doer under the law. We're to be doers of the law, not judges over the law. You can't do both at the same time. We are not to judge the law. The law is to judge us. And more importantly, there's only one ultimate lawgiver and judge, and it's not you. That's why you and I cannot pronounce final judgment on anyone. It's not our prerogative. It belongs to him and only to him who actually is able to save and destroy. See how he puts it? There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But who are you who judge to judge your neighbor? You can't save or destroy anyone. But the lawgiver and judge can. That's why it's left in his hands. To put it blood, bluntly, God is in charge of heaven and hell, not you and I. We're finite and sinful and often wrong, so it's a very good thing that final judgment is not in our hands. Let me quote a commentator by the name of Tasker. He says this, In this verse, James does not mean to suggest that we are not or ought not to have any human legislators. What he is emphasizing is that there is only one lawgiver whose laws are permanent, are of permanent significance, and whose judgments are of eternal validity. There's only one like that. For there is only one who is the Lord of life and death, who is able to save and to destroy. So it's not saying there's no, he's not saying there's no place for legislating laws in a land and having judges and juries, but, but as far as being the final arbitrator of heaven and hell, there's only one lawgiver and judge. There's only one who is the Lord of life and death. 
Now, as Christians, we can say that the lawgiver and judge has told us certain things in his word, and his word cannot be broken. But we should never give the impression that we are in the place of lawgiver and judge. If we come across that way, then God's word asks us this sobering question. Who are you to judge your neighbor? You're not in that position. You see it there at the end of verse 12. Who are you to judge your neighbor? Only God who gave the law and knows each human heart perfectly can rightly and perfectly and finally judge each person. I mean, I think James is saying, who do you think you are? Just who do you think you are putting yourself in the place of God? What arrogance, what foolishness to think that you're capable, capable of doing what only God can do. The one who judges another person is presuming to have authority to set the law or standard by which the other person is judged. Judging is an attempt to be in control as God is in control. This is a quote from someone. Judging is an attempt to be in control as God is in control, which has been our rebellious desire ever since the serpent told Eve she could be like God, knowing good and evil. Our sins of judging are arrogant attempts to set ourselves not only over the law, but over the lawgiver as well. So, I'm just, I'm just saying, James is showing how great a sin is involved in just this thing of speaking against one another. Yeah. So this goes all the way to God and being taking an arrogant attitude toward God and his law. Well, that brings us then to verse 13, because James goes into another manifestation of arrogance and presumption. That's what he's been talking about here in this attitude uh, towards uh, brothers and sisters. It's arrogance and presumption. Well, he, he goes into another area that this can happen in a Christian's life. That is self-confident planning which ignores God. That's the next section here. 13 through 16, self-confident planning, which ignores God. Making plans as if you had power over the future. Let me, let's just read it here. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we shall go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do, and also do this or that. But as it is, your boast, you boast in your arrogance. Such, all such boasting is evil. So again, such an attitude as expressed in these verses, verses is just the opposite of the humility that James has mentioned throughout this letter. Remember this? I mean, really, this is one of the major themes of this letter is humility. He talks about uh, there's, we need to 
humbly receive the word of God. That's in 121. It's a characteristic of any true wisdom. There will be humility in that. Uh, 313. It's the stance of receiving grace. 4.6. And it's commanded in his description of repentance. Humility, 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 he brings it out. Well, taking this kind of attitude in this self-confident planning that ignores God is not humility, it's arrogance. And he calls it boasting, arrogant boasting, as if we controlled time and events. Look at, look at how extensive, how comprehensive this boast is. You, we can just read over this, but just, just pick it apart here a little bit. It includes the time, today or tomorrow. I, I know what I'm going to do t- today or tomorrow. It includes the pr- purpose, we shall go. It includes the place, to this or that city. So the, the time, the purpose, the place. The duration, I'm going to stay there a year. And the goal, we'll engage in business. He's just he's saying, I've got it all mapped out. And not only that, I know the outcome. I'll make a profit. I'll, I'll do this or that, where and when and how I want to, and I'm going to tell you what's going to happen when I do it. Again, what arrogance, what a boasting attitude that is. You don't even know what will happen tomorrow, let alone what's going to happen a year from now. Our times are in God's hands, not ours. He's the one who sustains our life. Again, I I quote a lot from different writers, but they say it better than I can. He said, The biblical view is that we receive another day neither by natural necessity, nor by mechanical law, nor by right, nor by courtesy of nature, but only by the covenanted mercies of God. The only way you're going to have another day of life is that God gives it to you. Now, this section is not against planning ahead. Or it's not against seeking a profit in business. Those things aren't wrong. But it is against a self-sufficient, presumptuous attitude that does not take God into account. An attitude that disregards our absolute dependence upon God. Human plans come and go, only God's plans remain. Referring back to the previous verse, one writer said this, the thought of his own weakness and ignorance should deter man from judging his fellows and finding fault with the law. It should also prevent him from making confident assertions about the future, just knowing who we are. It should keep us from judging others, keep us from making uh, confident assertions about the future. Nevertheless, sadly, people go on trusting in their cleverness and their strength and their skill, or maybe their luck, and make confident assertions about what they're going to do with their life. How does James counter this? 
Well, he says, life's a vapor. Your life's a vapor. My life's a vapor, a mist. Something that appears briefly and then disappears. Children, just a quick one here. That's your life. That's my life. You don't feel that way right now. I'm getting to feel more of it. (laughs) Something that appears briefly and then disappears. Just as the morning sun soon burns off the thin fog, so illness or accident or malice can cut short any of our lives. We simply do not know what tomorrow will bring. Proverbs 27.1, do not boast about tomorrow. That's what he's talking about here. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. James tells us what we should be thinking and saying in verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and also do this or that. I don't think that James is telling us that we should always tack this phrase on any statement about plans, what we plan to do. That's not what he's saying here. But we must recognize our absolute dependence upon God and form all our plans with reference to doing to his will. That's the real meat of what he's saying here. In other words, Lord willing is not meant to be an empty religious phrase. The uh, commentator Douglas Moo put it this way, Jesus, Paul, And the other apostles did not always state this condition when they planned for the future. They didn't always say, Lord willing, Lord willing, Lord willing. They didn't always do that. What was important is not the verbalization, but that they had it as a principle fixed in their minds that they would do nothing without the permission of God, according to the will of God. That's the fixed in their minds and hearts. This is what. This is how I understand the future. This is how I view my life and what, I, what will come of my life. James attributes no magical significance to the words themselves. Rather, he wants us to adopt the attitude expressed by the words as, they, as a fixed perspective from which to view life. That was all a quote. This is our fixed perspective in how we view life and what, what God will do what will come of it. Lord willing. Lord willing. The continuation of our life here on earth and what we're able to do depends upon the will of God. This other attitude expressed here uh, in verse uh, 13, this attitude, is presumptuous, it's self-confident, it's arrogant, It's boasting, and it is sinful. That's what he says in verse 16. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. It's sin. Well, that brings us to verse 17. 
what James does in verse 17 is state a general principle which applies to what he has just said concerning these people, but also has a much broader application, verse 17 17 of chapter 4. James summarizes in this one verse much of what he's taught in this letter. As he's emphasized over and over again as we look through this letter, faith must bring about active obedience or it's not biblical faith. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Simply to know to do good but not to do it is not exercising authentic faith. And in fact, he says it's sinful. This verse is often used in relationship to what's called sins of omission. Maybe you've heard that phrase, a sin of omission. Not what we do which is wrong, which are sins of commission. We do something that we, we know is wrong and we do it, sin of commission. But what we didn't do that we should have done, a sin of omission. These people who were planning out their future might say, well, you know, I've not done anything wrong here. I've done no positive wrong. What's wrong with planning for the future and seeking to make a profit? Well, nothing in that in itself. But their sin involves not doing, that is, omitting what we should be doing, which is looking to God. James is telling them that they had actually sinned greatly by omitting God from their plans for the future. Indifference toward the will of God is not neutral. Indifference toward the will of God is not neutral. It is evil and boasting in self-sufficiency. And once you get into the category of boasting in our self-sufficiency, you're in the category of a sin of commission. Now, here's the amazing thing. In spite of all this, James calls these people brethren. You see that back up where we started. Do not speak against one another brethren. In other words, these were professing believers that he was admonishing and bringing these things out to. I actually think verse 17 is just another call to repentance for these professing Christians. The next section, verses 1 through 6 of chapter 5, I think his focus changes. These verses seem to be addressed to the rich people outside the church who were exploiting and oppressing the believers. So we'll look at that next time, Lord willing. But I want to close by going back to the point that I said, don't miss this point. All this can be taken care of if we'll just, by the grace of God, seek to speak redemptively. If you just remember that phrase as you go out from here today, I want to speak redemptively to all people, to my brothers and sisters in Christ and to the person I meet on the street, to speak redemptively. 
redemptively. We've been given a ministry of reconciliation. So how do we do that? Well, basically, I think it has to do with just walking with Christ, being clothed with Christ. Uh, Paul says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, I just, I'll close with these verses. This is out of Colossians chapter 3 and verse 12. And so, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, just like you put on your clothes in the morning, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. So, how do we avoid this judgmentalism? How do we avoid uh, this thing of any kind of arrogant attitude towards the future? Just put on Christ. He's not talking about putting on, faking anything. He's talking about being who you are in Christ. And I think uh, just that attitude of speaking redemptively will will keep us keep a proper focus there in our lives. I wanted to read one thing here in closing. This is from a book called The War of Words by a man named Paul David Tripp. He says, You and I do not produce change in others. It is always the result of God's power and grace at work. So, we let go of human demands. We don't try to impress people with how much we know or how much we've experienced. We don't try to force change by manipulation. We don't seek to get results with a loud voice or inflammatory words. We won't bribe or bargain or make deals. We won't seek to get results by guilt or condemnation or judgment. We don't trust in our airtight arguments. We recognize that if these things could bring about lasting change in the human heart, Christ would never have come to suffer and die. The most important encounter in in personal ministry is not people's encounter with us, but their encounter with Christ. So, we prepare ourselves for personal ministry by clothing ourselves with Christ and coming armed with the truth of his word. When these things are in place, we are ready to speak redemptively. So, I'll close there, and and, uh, next time we'll look at this next section, which begins in chapter 5 and goes through, well, we'll just cover 1 through 6, hopefully.